Dr. Lee Watson spent a large part of his professional life as an academic, a consultant, and in the media, but somehow found his way onto a yoga mat several years ago after using exercise as a way to combat the kinds of mental health issues that affect more of us than many would readily admit. His accomplishments in academia and as a journalist combined with a burning desire to give something back led him to want to create Fierce Calm, which delivers and funds free yoga classes in shelters and community spaces to refugees, to survivors of violence and conflict, and people facing systemic bias due to sexual orientation, income, age, racial, or cultural identity. Fierce Calm provides trauma-informed yoga teacher training, scholarships for marginalized and minoritized ethnicity students. And it's genuinely a real pleasure and honor to have you here with us. Lee, thank you so much for taking the time for um, flying back from Ukraine, especially early. You've been there recently and I definitely want to get into that. But yeah, just gratitude from my side for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you, Radhika. It's an absolute privilege to, to be here, to be quite honest. Yeah. I mean, all the work you're doing is truly, truly uh, honorable. And everyone that's listening to this, please do go and check out Fierce Calm. But maybe you can share with us, you just came back from Ukraine and maybe you can give us a little insight what it's like um, behind the media. You know, we see what we see on BBC News or Sky News, whatever it is. What's actually going on there? Um, <laughs> I think that's that's a whole other podcast on its own. It's like, yeah. how long have we got? Um, yeah. There's There's so many answers to that question. I mean, First of all, when I first went out there, nothing is as you anticipate. Nothing is quite how you think it's going to be. Stating the obvious, it is a war, and war is chaos. Right. So um, that's the first thing that strikes you is is things are happening very quickly, and nothing is happening quite as you'd imagine it. And the situation in Ukraine up until now on the ground in terms of the humanitarian effort really has been led by small organizations, community groups, volunteers that have gone over there, small charities, church organizations, a lot of Sikh organizations have gone over there to help really? out on the border area, for example. Um, but within Ukraine, I think I mentioned this to you earlier, it's it's almost reminded me of um, Dunkirk, you know, that flotilla of small boats that went over to to France to, to, to save lives. This is a flotilla of, of beat-up old transit vans and jeeps and old hippies and just people willing to just get over there and do what they can right. to help people who are really suffering in, in the, the occupied territories and the front lines of Ukraine. Things are really, really tough and... There's an urgent need for basic humanitarian supplies, water. You know, there are areas, communities we visited that haven't had, for, you know, clean water in several months and things wow. like that. So it's it's really tough out there. But at the same time, you know, I've just got back from spending two weeks in Lviv, which is essentially the capital of Western Ukraine, mm. a beautiful city that I'd urge anyone to visit at any time. It's a city of restaurants and cafe culture. Life there on the surface can appear very normal. Apart from the sirens, perhaps? Apart from the air raid sirens that will punctuate the silence from time to time. You know, they can go three, four times a day like they did just the day before I left. But then some of the times you can go four or five days without them. And the fact that, you know, everyone there is severely traumatized, um, even if, dare I say, they may not even realize it. You know, they are living under this threat of constant attack. Mm. Their lives have been turned upside down. Their futures are uncertain. And... We've reached the stage now where there's not a single Ukrainian friend. I don't have a single Ukrainian friend there on the ground that hasn't lost somebody close to them, whether that's a family that's member or a lifelong friend or doesn't have a family member or a close friend currently on the front line, you know, risking their lives. So even when things feel normal and you walk into a coffee shop, for example, and you see people sat around having a coffee, all of these people are, are carrying an awful lot. And, you know, this has been going on for six months now, so... 
it's it's a strange existence. It's, it's, it feels very strange to be back here when you you leave that reality and then come back to normality here. And it's one of the yeah. it's a real challenge to be honest. I mean, a lot before I went, a lot of people said you're going to need help when you get back. You're going to find it difficult, and mm. like anybody you think as in yourself are. that yeah, you're going to need help. Most definitely, yeah. Mm. People, friends who were ex-military had said, you know, if you need to talk to somebody when you come back. And I remember thinking, that's ah, going to be fine. I'm all right. Yeah. I've got my yoga. I've got my spiritual practice. I train people in trauma. but I'm out there to heal trauma. Right. I'll be perfectly okay. And? I think I am. <laughs> okay. But, you know, there, there are challenges in as much that you, you know, there's definitely something like a real sense of apathy when you come back to the world around you. Mm. You know, you look at the daily realities that people are facing here. And it's very hard not to sort of shrug your shoulders and think, really, like, mm. I don't care. I mm. don't care about the things that you're talking about or your daily struggles you've got here. Do you realize what's happening over right. there? You know, and that's that's a challenge because all our own realities are vitally important. To, you know, it's it's relative. isn't Exactly. It? It's relative. Mm. What kind of stuff you've been doing out there? Like, how have you tangibly been helping via Fierce Calm? What's I mean, I, I mean, you've told me before the podcast, <laughs> but I think for everyone that's listening, you know, you're talking about a small amount of people who are trying to do good in that space. And how is how's Fierce Cambio helping? What's what's the kind of updates on that side? So, I mean, initially we, we I ended up out there because um, we as Fierce Calm provide training in trauma informed, trauma sensitive yoga. Right. And when the war began, I realized that unlike other wars that we'd experienced recently or what we'd experienced, but, you know, had been taking place in other parts of the world. Mm. We'd been helping refugees from those wars and asylum seekers here in London with the practice of yoga. Mm. And unlike people who'd left from those countries, you know, we used to be working with people from Eritrea and Syria and Afghanistan, those conflict zones that have dominated the news recently. Right. Ukraine was slightly different. You know, it's a more, in inverted commas, westernized society. Right. There is a yoga culture there over yoga studios and yoga teachers. And I instantly thought there is, for want of a better word, an opportunity here where we can actually impact them on the ground by providing them with the resources and the training that we have and the knowledge that we have in being able to help and support their community over there because the community, their yoga community there, the people that walk through their studio doors are going to be very different to the people who were walking through their doors several months earlier. Mm. So initially I saw it as, again, struggling for a better word, but an opportunity to actually make a difference in training and supporting yoga teachers on the ground in Ukraine. That was slightly somewhat naive in the early days of the war because I would talk to yoga teachers who were like, you know, look, hey, it's me, remember me, we worked in the past on something or this project yeah. or that project, we could provide you with some training. And they were kind of responding with, Lee, I'm running down the road with three children and a kitten in a basket and I need somewhere to sleep tonight. Like, I don't need your training. Thanks very much. Right. And that was a lesson. I mean, I kind of knew that anyway, but that was a case of, okay, so as fierce calm as we have done in the past, we've supported teachers financially and things like that. It's okay. How can we support you? Mm. We can provide you with some resources to get you to safety. And then hopefully down the line, we can talk about working in community. Mm. But there was one studio in Western Ukraine where the owner of that studio, Yulia, who's become our linchpin out there, said, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying here and I want to open my doors to people who are fleeing the fighting. The studio became something of a shelter, a humanitarian aid hub, and is now functioning as a yoga studio that is free to refugees That's from other right. parts of the country and has created a really beautiful community and a safe space for people coming from other towns and cities in the east into, you know, our home there in western Ukraine. But as the war went on and the studio there started to flourish and we started to introduce other programs there like 
um, art therapy for children and things like that. I think possibly the last time I had a long conversation with you, I was at that point where I couldn't sit here in London while that was going on. People were over there doing our work. So I went over there to support, to see how I could help, to try and provide some training or at least yeah. impart some of the experience and knowledge that we have to them. Again, a big lesson there yeah. is they know far more than I do. You know, they've yeah. been living this reality. Who am I to go over and start to tell people, you should be doing it this way when mm. they've been with him in doing this for several months. Yeah. But it's, hearing all this is, 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 I'm just, while it's on my mind, it's so strange because, you know, it's, I'm picturing a war scene. I'm picturing air sirens. I'm picturing mm, people that are struggling to survive. And yoga to me seems like the epitome of a, a thriving community, like a community that's peaceful and joyful and, you know, is content with, okay, fine, we have some things that we're not happy with, the the government, etc. But in, in one sense, yeah, you know, yoga seems to be something that you do as an excess point as opposed to something that's a necessity. And to hear this example of Julia, who's, you know, running a yoga studio despite the, the challenges, can I ask you bluntly, does it make a difference? It definitely makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. Um, I mean, I think that sense we have of modern Western yoga, you know, as being this privileged, somewhat privileged pursuit that is in a way become a form of spiritual bypassing. You know, we go to yoga to just feel good and shut out the world and right. go home and carry on with our daily lives. You know, the root of yoga, what yoga is really all about, you know, is this, you know, the, the, the yogis of old, what they, these guys were warriors. I mean, they were troublemakers, you know. <laughs> they they were there to make... They, I believe yoga is a practice for us that will help us make the world a better place. Mm. And that's all about healing and community. Mm. And in a way, the physical practice of yoga, the yogasana, you know, is simply a gateway. For example, the studio we're talking about is in a town in Western Ukraine on a square with a child's playground in the middle of the square. So we're offering free yoga to people who arrive from displaced from other cities in Ukraine. So you imagine you're a mum who's fled a city in the east. You arrive in this town. You don't know anybody. You have literally you know, what, everything you own in the world is pretty much in a carrier bag because in the other hand, you've got a small child and perhaps your pet cat or whatever it might be. Yeah. You arrive in a new town. You've got nothing. Right. There's a sign up that says free yoga and you see a bunch of women going in and out of a door Community. or a bunch of women at the playground with the swings mm. and they say to you, hey, Come into the yoga class tonight. We'll look after you. They walk into that studio. They do an hour's yoga, but they walk out with a cot, with nappies, with baby milk, with all the things that they need. And right. now six months down the line, you know, I was there last week. We did an event in Lviv and some of the people came from the town because they wanted to be with us at our event up in Lviv, came up to us and came to Yulia afterwards and said, you know, I arrived. I mean, we've got notes from them. We, we arrived in this little town, frightened, scared, six months ago, mm. starting a new life. I'm not even sure I want to go back home now because I feel so at home here That's with this amazing. new community that I've found and the support and the sanctuary and the place of safety that you've provided us here in here in the West. That's far out. You know, and that really is what the yoga is all about. Yeah, I guess it would be nice to hear some more hope-giving stories because when we look at the news on Ukraine, we all we hear is the terror. And, I mean, I'm sure you've seen some really far-out scenes. Yeah. Um, and... What I'd like to hear is perhaps some hope stories, you know, like what have you seen that's really given you the drive to be able to say, I'm going to continue to be of service there. I'm going to continue to give my time, my energy, my heart, my mind, my words in speaking up for the oppressed. What, what's been what's been driving you, I guess, is, is the question in this whole point. 
it's funny because I was thinking about that question before we before before we started, and and I've not had much time to think about things since arriving today. I've been running around today, and and since getting back and thinking. I must sit down and, and come up with some answers to, to yeah. these questions. <laughs> some deep provoking. Yeah. And, you know, you're you're looking for that zinger that's like, it's going to be like really uplifting and really hopeful. And right. and I think there was a sense of, of that, answering that question, in a way there's a, like a prickle of discomfort as well, in oh. the sense that I almost want to say, come back and ask me that in, in a year's time or mm. two years' time when all of this is over. Because I found myself, as I was searching for an uplifting story, I was thinking, what has uplifted me? And instantly I'm making this about me in a situation where people are, as you and I sitting here now, suffering mm. and in living in fear of you know, their lives in mortal danger. And I'm sat here trying to cherry pick some nice stories that made me feel good, as right. if the experience over there is about me however i know that that's not the aim of the question and yeah. that was a process i went through in trying to come up with some answers so i think the experience i just talked about you know hearing from people directly that this has made a huge difference to them that it made them feel safe it's given them hope um working in a refugee center where there are pictures all over the walls sent by children all over the world to the children Beautiful. There within the the hub and just the little notes that the kids write, you know, with their drawings of rainbows and Ukrainian flags and an American flag. And it's like from five-year-old Joshua in so, such and such, you know, <laughs> infant school, Alabama. Um, we just want you to know when you go to sleep at night that there's a little boy in Alabama, you know, thinking of you and kids sending their teddy bears and things like that. Um, the army of volunteers and people who are out there helping mm. on the ground this is real selfless service, you know, that I've met the most phenomenal people I have ever met in my life over there on the ground in Ukraine. Just ordinary people from ordinary lives who actually aren't spiritual people, who aren't yoga practitioners, who aren't, you know, doing this, who aren't part of church groups, who aren't doing this to attain a seat in heaven somewhere or, or anything like that, who've just seen on the news what's happening, gone over there and are trying to help out and have been over there for months doing that day in, day out, risking their lives, Yes, we can touch on the issues we've, we've talked about again before about the dangers and if you don't know what you're doing, you know, there is a risk of doing harm at the same time. But just seeing the way people have responded to a crisis and are acting so selflessly, mm. you know, driven purely by the act of wanting to serve others and with no other motive. I mean, again, that's straight out of the Gita, right? Yeah. But these are the people who've never even heard of the Bhagavad Gita. They're just out there doing it and seeing that, that, human response to help another human being in need has just been the most uplifting yeah. experience of my life. Something that you spoke about that actually I want to ask you about is um, doing something without desiring anything in return. See, like the human thing is that even if we are going out to do something selflessly, there is an element of us that does desire some sort of acknowledgement. Now, from a spiritual perspective, or even just from a candid human perspective, is that okay, in your opinion? Like, what drives you to go back there, back to Ukraine? Is it purely selfless? Can you be honest about that and, and maybe speak about how, from your experience, what's been driving you to carry on being of service? Honestly, I don't have the answer to what drives me to do it. It's just innate. It's like getting wow. out of bed in the morning. You see that happening and you just feel that urge to help. I can't sit back and, and not do that. Yeah. And I think the urge to keep going back is because the more time you spend there, the more friends you have there, the closer you become to the people there who are suffering, but also those people I talked about who are out there helping others. The job is not done and mm. you can't leave a job half done. You know, 
the, the, the work, there is still more work to be done. But I think, you know, and again, you and I were talking about this earlier, we are not driven to do it through that need for recognition or reward. That isn't what drives me to do it. But there have been moments where when things aren't going as well as they should be, when sometimes you do have those, you know, those dark nights of the soul where you're like, yeah. why on earth am I doing this? Am I making a difference? Had this ma- has this made a difference? We can't stop this thing. There is this juggernaut of this war that is marching on. And, you know, we did it, for example, I was, um, we delivered some firefighter suits down to um, near Kiev for the, for the firefighters who were going down to Zaporizhia, which is where the nuclear power plant is that was or is under threat at the moment. And the firefighters down there didn't have the necessary equipment. We delivered some suits and then separately some boots. I got a, a message back two days later from one of the crews that they'd taken one lot down to the the near where the fire station was and they stopped off in Dnipro. Sorry, near the nuclear reactor is. They stopped off in Dnipro on the way there and spent the night having coffees in a cafe, stored the boots upstairs above this cafe. The following morning went back and the cafe had been hit. And everything had been destroyed. And that was like 120 pairs of the boots that we'd just driven halfway through a war zone to get to them. And there's times like that when you realise you can keep doing this. And sometimes it's like, is it making a difference? It's like you feel like you're just spitting into the wind. You know, it's like... um, And there are those moments, you know, when you you do wonder, like, why am I doing this? Times at the refugee hub when you sometimes feel like, this is just pointless. Like, you know, why why are we here? And then there would then be moments where you would get, I mentioned this to you earlier, at points where you really had given up, there would be some kind of sign from somewhere that signaled to you, no, you need to keep doing this. And that might be a note attached to a teddy bear or a note pinned to our desk wow. from a family saying, you know, thank you so much for, for what you've done for us, the support you've given. Mm-hmm. We felt safe here for the short time we were here. It means everything to us that you people have come from all over the world to try and help us. You don't do it for those reasons. But when that recognition or those thank yous come back, where you you see the reason as to why you're there and why you're doing it, then yes, it does help. And you do question yourself, you know. Sure. Um, should I should I be feeling good about getting this? I mentioned to you earlier I'd got an award for delivering the firefighters kit. It felt great to get it. I'll be perfectly honest. But then we are human beings. Like it's a basic human need to be to feel seen, and I think that's what it's about. Is not necessarily about the reward or the recognition. It's about we all have a desire and a need to be seen, wow. and also we have a desire and a need to know that actually our work is making a difference. So, mm. desire to be seen. So, see, it's, it's not. It's, it sounds almost anti-charitable, right? That you're going out. But at the same time, you, you're you're saying here that you have a desire to still be seen at moments. Mm. And is that wrong? Do you think that's, you know, see, from my perspective, I think it's completely fine. I think that everyone deserves to be seen. I think everyone deserves to be recognized for what they do. Even if um, our main intention isn't to be recognized. Mm. But I think it's so necessary for us to live in a culture of glorifying as opposed to criticizing. When we hear someone's done something good, the first thing that most people look at is the area in which perhaps they fell down. They could have done it better this way. Or everyone's got a right, everyone's got an opinion, right? When when someone's doing something that's valuable to the world, they could do it like this. They could perhaps do it like that. But I think the flip side is to enter into a a community which glorifies one another, a community which takes the time to say thank you. You know? 
I think that would be a much nicer community and a global community to live in than one which is looking simply for criticism. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have there been moments where you've questioned, you know, why you're even spending so much time? Because one of the purposes of this call is to, one of the purposes of this podcast is to discuss all the wonderful causes that you're part of, but also the human element and a spiritual perspective from your side that drives you to perhaps be the person that you are. And for someone that's listening, how do they live such a beautiful life of service that you've created? Would they first have to wait until they're glorified and until they do it? Or do they just drive out into the Ukraine and, and try to be of service? What would you suggest to someone that's looking to be of service in this world, spiritually speaking, or, you know, humanitarianly speaking? I think it's, it's, I kind of used to say this before Ukraine, actually, it was one of the things, you know, I learned when working as Fierce Calm here in London, working in shelters and running community programs and working mm -hmm. with refugees and asylum seekers is one of the most important questions or one of the most important things you can do is, is simply listen. And it's not about doing what you think other people need or what you think they might need, or even this is, for example, I think I might mention earlier about, you know, my area of expertise might be in, in training yoga teachers in trauma-informed yoga teaching. I had the idea that I would go to Ukraine because that's what I can do. This is the thing that I can give people. But that wasn't what they needed in that moment. What they needed perhaps was some money to put a roof over their heads. And right. then when I got out there, yes, I offered a little training, but to teachers who were already doing that work, I can offer a guiding hand or try and offer a little bit of knowledge, but I've ended up spending more time. If you go over there to deliver yoga teacher training or even yoga, the yoga is great. But if mm. you're in an environment where people need food and water and a roof over their head, then quite frankly, the yoga, the physical practice of yoga can wait. It's about identifying what the need is, listening to what the need is and doing that. <laughs> you know, so for example, right now in Ukraine, we face a really, really harsh winter. There is a need for basic winter essentials like blankets, clothing, items like that. We can send those items there. But actually, for example, this is a unique situation in terms of where the war is located is it's located within Europe. So actually, you're not bordered by countries, for example, where in, in, for example, if you take the Middle East, where you're bordered by countries that themselves are, are either conflict driven or, or, you know, struggling. Mm -hmm. In Ukraine, you're bordered by Poland, you're bordered by, you know, you've got these, these countries around Ukraine where simply you can go and buy the things that you need to take into Ukraine that are cheaper than from the UK. Mm -hmm. So, for example... We saw, we've seen a lot of people filling up vans of stuff here and sending it over to the Ukraine that costs more to send it over there and drive it across Europe to get it into Ukraine than it would be to actually send a thousand pounds to a charity that's doing to a charity that's doing the work there on the ground who could just buy the winter coats or buy the goods and get them in. You know, so for example, quite often when in the yoga community, and I'm, in ways I'm sometimes I'm not comfortable saying this because I don't want to denigrate people's intentions or the kindness of people that's in people's hearts. Sure. But I have experienced it where, for example, I've been in a refugee centre or something like that, and we've run out of money. There is no money to feed the children. And I've said, you know, look, we really need help here. We need some money to feed the children or some pet food for the animals. Can people help? And, you know, I'm uncomfortable saying this, but I've had messages where it's like, I could do a meditation class for you. And I'm like, you mean you could do a donation-based class to raise some money? No, no, I'll send you a recording of, of some meditations that you could use. And wow. it's like... I need to feed these kids. Sure. Thank you, but I can't feed children with a meditation class with the mm. best one in the world, you know. And it's that desire to help actually 
more importantly is step, and I think this is the spiritual practice, right? It's again talked about it, our junior in the chariot. It's about taking that moment, that pause, stepping back and listening to what is needed, identifying what the need is. And often that's just as simple as saying to people, what is it you need? And when people tell you what they need, listen, you know, and that applies whether you're here in the UK or whether I'm out there on the ground in Ukraine, you know, walking into a village saying, what do you need? I'm going to give you a yoga class when actually what they need is clean water. Right. You know. How do you stay sane through it all? <laughs> you know, because I know that, like, you know, in the introduction we spoke about how you um, found your connection through the yoga mat away from a life of uh, journalism, away from the life of the media. What currently keeps you spiritually centered? Like, do you have a practice? Do you have... Or is your seva your practice? Is your service to the world your practice? It's funny, you, you've just put the words into my mouth because oh. I, was, I was really struggling with, again, like thinking, you know, how would I answer that question? Mm. Because I am the world's worst. I think of myself as like the world's worst yogin. I mean, <laughs> you know, I've studied with teachers who have, you know, and this isn't to say they're wrong, by the way, who've insisted you must have a daily sadhana, you know, you must get up in the morning, have your altar, meditate for this long, commit to a yoga practice every day. And there's been periods in my life where I've done that. Mm. But I actually picked up an injury the first time I went out to Ukraine. I haven't been able to practice yoga physically for six months, having a sauna practice. I'm only just now recovering able to do that. I could meditate every day, but I don't get up and meditate every morning. All the things that I would say to somebody, this is what you should do, I don't do. Mm. But then I've questioned, am I, I... I've said, oh, I haven't done much yoga in the last six months. And somebody far more wiser than me, like you, has come along and said, Lee... Being out there and being of service is the yoga. And I think the yoga practice, because I'm not comfortable to sort of say this like as if I'm praising myself, but because I do live my yoga off the mat, those that practice of yoga that isn't physical asana, but perhaps is like meditation and things like that. I don't get up and meditate every morning, but what I do do is like when I'm in the refugee center, I recognize that those resources, those skills that I've picked up over the years of practicing yoga, I just simply drop into my daily life all the time. You know, so there are situations in the refugee center where I'm in tune with my body. I'm in tune with the feelings and sensations I'm experiencing as a yogin. I will identify, hang on, I can feel myself starting to starting to slip here. I'm just going to, it's busy, but I'm going to walk outside. There's a tree. I'm going to sit on the grass. I'm going to take my shoes off, stick my feet on the earth, and I'm just going to sit and close my eyes and maybe do some, you know, some pranayama for five minutes or just close my eyes and just meditate just for a few minutes. So no, I don't have that daily practice, that ritualized practice, but I do weave it into my, my daily life in that way. So I think that does keep me yeah. well, relatively sane. It's hope giving, you know, like hearing you speak about it, it makes me feel, because I think sometimes we live in a culture of spiritual guilt tripping. Exactly. You know, that if you don't practice your sadhana every day, if you don't have a practice every single day, then you're the worst yogi that can be. Yeah. And I'm of the opinion that I don't think that that's true. I think we go through phases. Mm. Like exactly how you said it, yoga off the map, yoga in the world, you know, finding a connection with, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a theist, so I'm all about having a connection with God. So having a connection of God outside of my chanting with my beads in my hand. You know, when will that come? That spontaneity of, of connection. And I think that, yeah. Do you have any advice perhaps for someone that, is maybe feeling inspired by this thought of yoga off the mat. Like, how would they do that? What would be their call to action? Ask others what it is that they need mm. and do that. <laughs> you know, it's that simple, really. Open up the ears. Yeah. Yeah. And act from a place of love, you know. The question that follows, 
how does one act from a place of love or even recognize what it means to act from a place of love? Because we spoke about this off the podcast about how there was someone who wanted to do good, ended up providing the wrong equipment. You know, maybe you can share the story if you feel comfortable to do so and ended up doing more harm than good. But for someone that is trying to do an activity of love, how can there be a way in which that person is certain that what they're doing is loving? Hmm. I think it comes down to, again, this is one of the key themes of the, I mean, I'm talking to a Gita scholar, so, no, no. you know, this is one of the, the key themes of the Gita, right, is, is, I think there's a, obviously there's various translations, but one of the phrases I've always carried with me from one of the early books I read on, on, on the Bhagavad Gita was, was um, Michelle Kuchasandra Johnson, who's written a book called Skill in Action, mm -hmm. and, you know, yoga is skill in action, it's that discernment of the right action and making the right choices, and that's what the yoga practice has given me when I'm out there, again, I guess I am practicing it when I'm out there is taking those moments of pause and reflection to consider, am I doing harm? Am I doing good? Mm. And we used the phrase earlier from the Gita again that, you know, depending on the translation, no effort is wasted, no, no gain reversed. There is the idea that identify the need, just get out there and do it. But there's a but into that is that, you know, there is a contradiction in, in that we can do harm if we just get out there and, and do what we think needs to be done without the guidance of like you were talking earlier, you know, of a teacher or someone with knowledge who can offer that wisdom to guide us in the right direction. And the story you were talking, for example, referring to earlier was an example where where we've seen this army of, of volunteers go over to Ukraine and wanting to help and wanting to do good in the very early days of the war. Most of the Ukrainian troops in the front lines weren't equipped with body armor. Right. And there was a, a group of a group of guys from Kharkiv, which was occupied early on, who fled west to Lviv, which is kind of where we're based, who'd set up uh, manufacturers of, of the vests and the body armor and have been violating bulletproof vests. Bulletproof vests, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so what you have is you have the vest carrier and then a plate goes inside it. And because of the war, global prices of those have absolutely rocketed. They're expensive to buy. They're difficult to get into the country. Mm -hmm. They've started manufacturing them within Ukraine. They're acting from a place of love, for example, asking how you can do that, how you, how you can do that, because they are creating these items to protect the people who are protecting their families and their homes. Mm -hmm. So they're made with a lot of love and care and attention. They're, they're ensuring that they work, which means they've gone through rigorous testing. They provide them for free. They sell them commercially, but provide them for free to anybody that needs them. So if you're a humanitarian aid worker or you're a school, they're developing them for children, for evacuations and things, all providing them for free, but then funding them by selling them globally. And they were showing us that in the early days of the war, they've got them at the test center, is an American philanthropist had gone over there very early on, identified that there was a shortage of armor plating and, and body armor. Yeah. So spent 500,000, half a million dollars on purchasing some body armor from, I don't really know where, they bought it from somebody somewhere in, mm -hmm. in Europe. And this body armor was just simply not fit for purpose. It was shoddy. The armor plating inside did come from old street signs and what that meant as old well. Street old street signs. signs, yeah. Holy moly. Bits of car door, things like that. So what happened and they showed, I mean, it's not pleasant. You can actually look, I'm going to be putting some of it on our, our page. Some of the impact of, of where, you know, they showed bullet holes from Kalashnikovs where not only did it pierce this armor, but because this material wasn't fit for purpose, it, the, uh, the material itself then fragmented and shattered through into, into, the, body. The, into the poor soul wearing it. Yeah. So wow. that's an example where someone has gone into a scenario where 
intention of doing intention good. of doing good spent a lot of money on on a on something mm-hmm. that they hoped would save lives but has probably ultimately ended up costing a lot of lives because of a lack of guidance yeah yeah it's it's symptomatic of kind of our yoga culture which is that we have i and this is just subjective is my opinion it's it's not at all objective but i think that we have rejected authoritative testimony instead of going towards authoritative testimony we're kind of just basing our decision on sensory perception that i think i feel that this is the right thing to do so therefore i'll just do it and mm. my intention's right so therefore i'll just do it but in this particular situation imagine the, he's a nice person he's donated five hundred thousand dollars us dollars and trying to <laughs> give body armor but unfortunately it was made out the wrong material and it's, it's done more harm and I think that this is a culture which I think we need to change slightly, which is to find out, to discern what are the right authorities, what are the right places in which we can receive genuine spiritual knowledge or even material knowledge. You know, in this particular situation, who are the right people to talk to on the ground who are in the Ukraine, like yourself, and will know what the right places like there's no point in me doing an event raising a couple of thousand pounds and then just giving it without knowing where it's going. I think that's a big sticking point for people when it comes to charity but i think you're a nice example of someone who you know i can message and i think anyone who messages the fierce calm instagram or email will be able to find out you know this is a tangible way in which i know will make a difference and with the knowledge that you're on the ground so it gives me great hope that people like you exist in the world i mean it has been it has been thank you it has been you know in lviv for example where i was staying there was an animal shelter next door Mm. um the last couple of weeks and I love animals. And I went down there one day and I just said, you know, look, is there anything we can do for you? And they said, we just need people to walk the animals because they're here all day. So I spent my downtime, which was a nice thing to do, walking the dogs. But it meant that, you know, I could then message back home and say to people, you know, look, if you'd like to feed these animals and buy some dog food, if you'd like to help and you want to help animals, I can literally walk into a supermarket, buy the cat and dog (laughs) food, hold up a receipt, show me giving the the food to the animals. And those, your 200 pounds or whatever you've donated, 50 pounds, 10 pounds, is going straight into the mouth of the dog that you you want to feed, you know. So there's something kind of beautiful about that, the way that it's operate, going working out there in Ukraine without the large NGOs. But the absence of the large NGOs is is a real issue. And again, a whole other... Sure. I wouldn't even want to get into... Spec- there are reasons as to why, legitimate reasons as to why, for example, some of them aren't operating on the ground with inside Ukraine. Mm. Um, not necessarily why they're not operating on the ground outside Ukraine. I think that's inexcusable. But mm. apparently from people who've experienced conflict zones all over the world... Far more often than I have, this is the norm. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, bringing it back to yoga, I mean, that thing about doing harm, that's what we do here in London as well. You know, we provide trauma-informed training for yoga teachers in the yoga space because, as we were saying earlier, yoga can be an incredibly powerful medicine. Yeah. You know, it has huge healing potential, but like any powerful medicine, in the wrong hands can do harm. Mm-hmm. And... You know, with, for example, incidences of trauma, people with PTSD, survivors of sexual abuse, trafficking. For a yoga teacher who's come with the best intention at straight out of a 200 hour, who's done a, you know, a power vinyasa or a rocket teacher training and walks into a yoga class full of refugees, can do tremendous harm mm-hmm. and can trigger people, you know, in in ways that they aren't able to either navigate or, or even be aware that they they are doing harm. So, I can imagine. Yeah. You know, our work here is about again, it's minimizing the harm that we can do and hopefully offer that guidance in how we can heal rather than harm. I like that humble approach. Minimize the harm. You know, most people come in saying, 
I'm here to change the world. No, I'm here to minimize the harm. Because <laughs> ultimately, honestly speaking, what, what good can we really do? You know, it's not in our hands anyway. We try our best. And as uh, many of my teachers would say, let God do the rest. Yeah. You know, it's it's not in our, our hands to, to control the result of how no. things happen. But we can minimize the harm. Yeah. And I think I've just used that phrase, you know, healing. Yoga's got huge healing potential. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm also aware with our yoga classes and everything that we do, we're not going to... We aren't going to heal anybody. Mm-hmm. They're going to, hopefully, we can help them heal themselves. And in the same in Ukraine, you know, we aren't, I, I can't, we're not going to save any, we can't, <laughs> we're not here to save people, you know. Um, it's about providing people with the resources and the tools that they can hopefully do that themselves. And I think, again, that's part of the yoga practice is not only for others, but for ourselves is gaining that, that's part of the spiritual path, isn't it? Yeah. Is that, gain attaining that level of acceptance that, you know, Thank you. Thank you so much, Lee. Honestly speaking, I'm just really glad that there's someone like you in the world. And um, I know that you're not really such a big fan of accepting glorification, but um, it's it's hope giving no? that people like you exist. And more than that, that you're an access point for people to be able to to also share and to be able to give something to those that are suffering. Um, and this conversation has been sober and rightly so, because I think that sometimes we can wrap ourselves up in thinking that uh, spirituality or a kind of conversation on spirituality is all about um, just chopping down, you know, uh, rules and regulations or chopping down misconceptions about spirituality. But this is uh, a conversation that I think has been really about uh, savor in action, yoga off the map. And uh, I think you're a great proponent of that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We're going to go into some quick fire questions. Uh, one word, one sentence. Here we go. Uh, best advice you've ever received? Poof. You're going to be editing this bit. <laughs> <laughs> um, wow. Don't eat the yellow snow? No. <laughs> <laughs> Let's leave it there. <laughs> Do you know, you've completely thrown me. Um, I think it's a line from my one of my teachers is, it touches in on what we were saying about the limitations on healing and that is that yoga is for everybody but also for nobody. Mm-hmm. Wow. <laughs> Worst advice you've ever received? Oh, you've got me on the spot. <laughs> I was meant to do that. Mm. Again, completely thrown me. Mm. Pass? Yeah, I think I might learn, see, if I, see if something comes up. Yeah. Cool. One word to describe fierce calm community something you wish you had more of one word or one sentence right now because of the situation in ukraine i would say money Mm. (laughs) funds Mm. something you wish you had less of (laughs) self-doubt if you could create one law that everyone had to follow what would it be be nice (laughs) be kind people yeah, be nice. Be kind. Wonderful. Thank you so much. <laughs> In closing, I just want to offer my sincere gratitude to you for coming, being part of this conversation, for raising awareness of all the wonderful stuff that you're doing with Fierce Calm. Um, how can people stay connected? What's the routes in which people can offer some service, offer some help, uh, offer some money, much needed money? What would be the way in which they do that? What would be the way in which they can connect with you? 
Um, we are, things kind of grew initially out of an Instagram page. Oh, no. It was about sharing stories of how yoga has helped save people's lives. That was what we kind of became known for. Um, so through social media, through Instagram, I'm not as active on Facebook as I should be. Um, I am the world's worst delegator, as anyone who knows me <laughs> will, will tell you. So um, You fly out to Ukraine by yourself. <laughs> and I, I tend to do everything myself, which meant that, for example, on the social media front, I've not been as active as I could be. So we need help there. Mm. But I can also be contacted through social media. It's all me. One. You know, when you come, when you go to my Instagram, it's me. There's nobody else. You are talking to me. Um, social media, Instagram. There was a website, www.fiercecalm.com. Um, usually, if you just put Fierce Calm into Google, you will find you will find us, and that's how we can be contacted, or I can be contacted. Wonderful. Well, I hope. Everyone that's listened to this, um, please reach out. Please be of some service. I think it's a wonderful cause. And it's not just Ukraine. There's so many wonderful areas and places in the world that Fierce Karma are helping, uh, even here in the UK. Mm. So please uh, do get in touch. Do reach out. Feel uh, the permission is given to you to yeah, reach out to, to, to Lee. He's not going to be overwhelmed by uh, people asking, can I be of some service? Tell me how I can <laughs> help. So yeah, please do that. From my side, again, deep, deep gratitude for taking the time out to be here for enliven, enlivening me on living yoga off the mat and enlightening me on how uh, one should serve with guidance and for generally just being such a nice guy and, and cool person to chat to. Thank you so much. Thank you, Radhika. It's an absolute privilege and I'm, I'm honoured to be here. And I will say as well, actually, that when you ask the question, what keeps me sane? It's community. And that mm. for me, for example, over the last few months has been when I've come back to London is turning up to your your Friday nights and your Kirtan sessions and those have been, you know, being in community with people and beautiful souls that you've gathered around you is absolutely priceless. You know, that is what sustains me. I'm trying to do my thing. I'm trying <laughs> to do my thing. Thank you all so much. Well, here ends another podcast of For Soul's Sake. Uh, please do share the conversation. Please do uh, like, comment, do the thing that you need to do to make this go viral to many more people that will hear this conversation. Uh, stay tuned for more For Soul's Sake. Namaste. Adi Bol.